Welcome to the Joel Beasley Tech and Science Podcast. Basically, my team showed me the topic and I was like, this is awesome. I'm a big nerd, right? So I was hoping you could share with me, like, what is this technology? Well, hypersonics, yeah, it means that it's a vehicle that's flying um, and is flying very, very fast. Hypersonic means it's flying the speed is much greater than the speed of sound, which is a little bit of an abstract idea. So, for example, hypersonic, the slowest hypersonic vehicle flies at something like 3,500 miles per hour. So that's like, you know, 50 times faster than you should be driving down the freeway, right? It's like a mile a second. If you can imagine an airplane flying a mile a second, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome, right? So that's what hypersonics is, really, really fast flying vehicles. They're used for a lot of different things. So some of it is like space exploration. Some of it is national security, sort of defense things. We don't have it today, but in the future might be passenger flight, you know, getting from, I don't know, LA to Japan in a couple of hours instead of whatever it takes right now. So it's a really cool and exciting uh, technology. To go a mile, to go that fast, right? Do you, can you do that at like 14,000 feet? Do you have to be at a specific altitude? Yeah, so, you know, flight, uh, air flight is almost always about not having too much what we call drag force, but the, the force that slows you down. And so, yeah, you tend to fly pretty high, uh, higher than you and I would fly normally, uh, to keep that, to keep the drag force down so that it's, um, so that it's economic, so that you wouldn't have to burn a, a huge amount of fuel to keep yourself going. So tends to be high up in the atmosphere. You know, if you're coming back from space, so like when people come back from the International Space Station, that's an example of a hypersonic situation. So that's, you know, so you're in space, right? That's really high. But even if you wanted to have a passenger aircraft, you would be flying much higher in the atmosphere than we do today. Yeah. I actually got to talk, I think like three weeks ago with one of the astronauts that came back from Elon Musk, the SpaceX first ISS uh, mission. And boy, was that cool, man. That guy was just like next level uh, type of person. So I was was taking notes. It's like, how do I be like this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's got to be an exceptional experience, right? And it's it's exceptional people that in general, you know, uh, end up doing that kind of stuff. So do we have, does the United States have this hypersonic technology? Well, one of the sort of confusing things about hypersonics is, is it is several different things. And so, you know, coming back from orbit, like you were talking there with the astronaut, that's one kind of hypersonics for space exploration. So, yes, we have that, right? You were just, you, you're just talking to someone who's, who's experienced hypersonic flight in that environment. For sort of the defense applications, that's kind of, you know, so, th- so that means hypersonic missiles. It means, you know, weapons that are flying very fast. I would say there's almost like an an arms race going on right now between maybe China and Russia and the U.S. in that space. So the U.S. is working hard to develop these kinds of things. And I would say that like China and Russia um, already have hypersonic weapons in their arsenal. So it's an area of, you know, active research and development uh, around the world. If you go up to like low Earth orbit, how quickly does the world spin? If you're in the International Space Station in the Earth, uh, yeah. how many minutes for a full rotation? I think it's about an hour and a half, something like that. 
Yeah. So they can get like a hypersonic missile up there and basically put it down wherever they want. Yeah, that's right. So last year, I think in the fall, or actually no, earlier this year, there was a report that China had launched a missile that had gone all the way around the world. And basically the message was they could they could reach out and touch anywhere with that system. So that was almost like a Sputnik moment. I don't think it's quite the same, but it certainly got the attention of a lot of people who whose job it is to protect our country. Right. Yeah, I think the difference between that and the Sputnik is, well, I mean, they deny the claim, right? Doesn't China deny it that they didn't yeah. do it? Yeah. Right. but i think there's enough you know there's no smoke without fire right so i think there was enough reports that probably something happened do you ever get into the defense side of things i do i do so i've had a lot of interaction with the air force and other parts uh, space force these days and you know i work in a university and do research most of the time but you know what we research also has an impact in the end on these kinds of things and actually i mean there's a lot of common overlap between the space exploration hypersonics and national security hypersonics. In the end, you're flying very fast. You need special kind of materials to build the vehicles out of. And so from a, from a kind of science point of view, it's the same science, right? So it are similar signs. It's interesting to watch these fields develop. Like when the private space company started happening, there's a really small pool of people that you could even potentially hire for that. But then as more private space companies get older and then there's more people involved and there's new expertise and then, you know, an early member of SpaceX goes and founds their company and it just makes more people. Are we in like super early stages of hypersonic? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think that, you know, when in my job, I talk to people in the government and, and industry, big companies all the time, and they're interested in university research, but they're probably, you know, more interested in the people, right, in the human product of doing research in a university environment. There is a shortage of people, you know, the space economy is is growing, right, like crazy. And just in general, of course, the U.S. has kind of a shortage of STEM you know, educated uh, workforce. And this is, uh, you know, maybe one of the newest examples. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, you know, I'm an aerospace uh, engineering sort of professor. I mean, my students all get great jobs right away. So, so that's good. We just need more of them. So do you do research like within the context of the university or is that something separate you do? How does, how does your job work? Oh yeah. So it's mostly done through the university. So you know, I write proposals to government agencies and industry with, you know, new ideas of stuff to research and some of them get funded. And, and so then that funding is used to support usually uh, graduate students who do the research. And, you know, it's, it's really a powerful way to, to do this kind of business because you're, we're educating people while they're also, you know, pushing forward the frontiers of, of, of science and engineering through their research. And so it's kind of a win-win. It's, it's a good paradigm, I think. What's the propulsion system of a hypersonic? What do you call it? Do you call it a hypersonic device? How do you refer to it with a sense of ambiguity? Vehicle. Yeah, a vehicle. Vehicle. Yeah. What's the propulsion system or like the fuel for a hypersonic vehicle? Yeah, again, it you know, partly depends on, on the application. So for the, for the military stuff, the way what happens is you launch a vehicle on a big old rocket, mm-hmm. and then the vehicle would separate from the rocket and then, you know, sort of fly in the atmosphere. And when it's flying in the atmosphere, it may or n- may not have a propulsion system. So if it does, it's a special thing called a scramjet, 
which is a supersonic combustion ramjet. But it's basically, it's very interesting technology too. So it's an engine in which you're bringing in air, just like a jet engine you see on an airplane, and you're mixing in some propellant, some fuel, and burning it. But you're doing all of that at incredibly high speeds. Not not the not the 3,500 miles per hour, but maybe 1,000 miles per hour. So you're having to get all this uh, burning and combustion done uh, at very high speed. So some hypersonic vehicles have these scramjets that allows them to kind of cruise through the atmosphere. And then other systems, you just launch them on a big rocket and they basically glide down to wherever they're going. So they often don't have propulsion systems on them. You have this other rocket. What's the fuel of the rocket that they're attached to? Yeah, the fuel is usually uh, some kind of solid propellant is what it's called. And I mean, there's different forms of that, but that's that's the technology that's been around forever. I mean, almost all the rockets that are launched use uh, solid propellants. Yeah. So they use that tried and true system to get it up to speed and get it up to where it needs to be. And then often when they don't have like a scramjet, they're just, you know, using the airflow to guide the missile. Exactly. That's right. And, or and the vehicle, and, sorry, the vehicle. Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah. The vehicle's good. Yeah. You know, so another, I mean, I, I hadn't mentioned this before, you know, another type of hypersonic vehicle, but it is a weapon. Are these things called inter continental ballistic missiles. Now, those uh, things have been around, right? The Cold War, all ICBM. the way back to the 50s. ICBMs, right? So ICBMs are hypersonic too. They get launched on an even bigger rocket and they go up out, outside of the atmosphere into space and then come back down again, okay? So now these new hypersonic vehicles, one of the things that's different about them is they don't go all the way out into space. They fly in the atmosphere, and then they're what we call maneuverable. They can move around and go a lot of different places. And this makes them very difficult to defend against. You know, an, an ICBM, it kind of follows Newton's laws of, of motion. That is, you know, if you pick it up, it, it's going to follow just like a cannonball, right? It's going to follow a very predictable path. These new systems don't follow any kind of predictable path because they can maneuver all over the place. And so that means you have to track them all the way through their flight. You know, if you're trying to defend against one, you have to track it all the way. And it's flying in, an, a, in a region of the atmosphere that we're not used to looking in. It's not in space. It's not where aircraft fly. It's somewhere in between. And, and that turns out to be um, a gap that, that we're not used to, you know, kind of monitoring. So, yeah, let's talk about that. You would have to have a certain amount of satellites in orbit positioned correctly because you, you couldn't wait for an hour and a half rotation, right? You would have to be able to see the complete canvas all the time, right? And then monitor things as they move across. Do we have that technology today? Well, we, we may have the technology, but we don't have you know the system, right? So that this is what people in the U.S. are talking about for defending against hypersonic weapons of other countries is some kind of space-based surveillance network. Which, Starlink. Like I said, <laughs> well, <laughs> right. Yeah, let's ask Elon to, you know, to help us out here. So we have the tech. I mean, I think we have the technology in terms of sensors and linking it all up into a system. But to actually put all that stuff up in space, you know, it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take a few years for sure. You know, it's an interesting question. If If, if, if someone you're worried about, another country has as a weapon that's difficult to defend against and it's going to be incredibly expensive to defend against. I mean, they do, you do have to ask the question, should, you know, 
should I go ahead and defend against it or, or find other ways to get around it? And that's, you know, I'm sure people in the Pentagon and so on are, are having those conversations. We should just take from like the cosmetics budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Where, you know, wherever we can get it. So how does the United States currently defend against this threat? Well, we don't really have, you know, an effective uh, defense against it. There's a part of the Department of Defense called the Missile Defense Agency, MDA. That's their mission. Their mission is to defend against all, you know, defend the country against all types of missiles. This is, and they have very effective means for slower uh, weapons. And so the first line of defense would be, you know, if somebody fired one today, the first line of defense would be to use what we have, right? obviously, right? And it's not very clear how effective that would be. You know, it's been reported that Russia has fired some hypersonic weapons uh, in the Ukraine conflict. And so there's maybe opportunities to learn what's, what's involved by, you know, we're, we're obviously monitoring all of that activity pretty carefully, I would expect. That's kind of a hand-waving, right, reply to your, to your question there. I mean, that's, People are very concerned that we do not have an effective uh, defense against these systems today. I'm actually incredibly surprised that we don't have 24-7 real-time monitoring of every square inch of the surface of the Earth. Yeah, we, you know, we monitor a lot of things, but in the end, I mean, there's the surface of the Earth, but then there's all the layers of the atmosphere as well, right? But you know, if you're in space... I mean, an individual missile might be, oh, I don't know, 10 feet long, 15 feet long. It's not tremendously big. And like I said, you, it's not just that you pick it up once. You have, to, you have to be continuously tracking it. And, you know, even if we had some systems that could track, you know, some missiles, I, you know, if there was a, an all-out war, non-nuclear, with a peer nation, you know, hypersonic weapons would be one element of just a big mixture of all different kinds of things that they would be throwing at us and we'd be throwing at them. I mean, it, it you know, it, it is, if it hopefully never gets to that, obviously, but if it does, it's going to be really messy. I was listening to Ray Dalio this morning and I, I follow this guy for the past like three or four years and he's always been fairly relaxed when he talks about like the world cycles and, and the different, uh, attributes that that drive behavior and debt cycles and, and such and i just heard an interview this morning of him like a couple days ago and he's now just like yeah this is happening <laughs> and he explains it very clearly and provides historical evidence this is not the first time this type of thing has happened and then it's it's less about like if it'll happen but like how it will play out right and i'm curious because you know i've been in technology my whole life and all you need to do is like take out a power station or, you know, you don't have to do a whole lot to cause chaos, right? Especially yeah. in the cities where there's a lot of people and every resource is shipped in and brought in. So for me, I, I mean, can you just imagine what would happen if we didn't have the internet for 72 hours? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely. And it's the same kind of thing with space-based assets. Like if we didn't have GPS, right? GPS went down, right? It's another good one. Yeah, I don't want to tempt fate, but you know, it's, it's in some ways it's kind of surprising there hasn't been an event of some kind. Yeah, 
Well, that's if you look historically on the time period of the time between large wars, we're like about due for one. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want to sound dark or anything, but that's just historical, right? So, yeah. well, you know, I think you and I stay positive and discourse, conversations. I think that that's the key to understanding other people and ultimately the key to cooperation. Yeah, I, you know, technology is also an opportunity for collaboration. I mean, obviously, relations with Russia have been, are strained right now and never been particularly good. But the International Space Station is a really great example of where, you know, a lot of the international community did come together yeah. for a common purpose, right? For, for science and, 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 and research. And so I think that, yeah, I agree with you 100% that finding different ways to engage with folks around the world or even in your own country that you don't necessarily agree with, right? Understanding, you know, common areas where you can collaborate and work together is super important. It's almost kind of beautiful how the increase of technology, it empowers us to kill each other faster and more efficiently <laughs> at the same time, though, it brings us together. So it's like, do, it's like the scalpel. Is it a weapon or does it save your life? Like, it's really kind of interesting because now, you know, we can be talking and you can be in Europe yeah. and like everything's cool. Lights just bouncing around the world and we're just having a conversation uh, and it enables businesses like mine. Like I do 90% of my interviews like this. And I think that that's, uh, I'm really grateful for technology and to talk more. I'm curious, do you know about different technologies that NASA has given the, you know, private sector? Well, that's a good question. You know, I mean, I think there's kind of an analogy of how the space industry is evolving right now to the way the, um, the aviation industry evolved back in the 40s and 50s, that, that way back then, NASA was, was not doing any space work at all. It was only, you know, sort of researching airplanes and airfoils and engines. And, you know, part of NASA's role a very important part of NASA's role is to support U.S. industry. Is to you know is to do the high risk you know break the frontiers of research and technology and then give that stuff by what they learn to U.S. industry. Right, supposed to build up, and so that was very very effective. It may, I mean making Boeing, you know, aircraft company the leading uh, producer in the world of, of airplanes uh, for a long time, and so that's what's been happening more recently in space. That I, I know, for example, NASA has helped um, companies with special materials needed to protect, again, in the hypersonic regime, protect capsules when they come back from space, like the Dragon for SpaceX and so on. And so companies like SpaceX and, and Blue Origin and so on are benefiting, have benefited from you know, all the expertise that NASA has built up over the years. And sometimes people... You know, kind of see that as some kind of competition between NASA and and uh, the U.S. companies, but it's absolutely not. It's a truly a, a partnership, and I think what we'll see NASA evolve into is is again finding those areas that are too risky, too expensive today for companies to take on, and to make progress with them and develop and mature whatever the technologies are, and, and then pass them, you know, pass them on to to commercial companies, to make profit and, 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 and to make products and so on. So I think it's a really great example of what NASA was set up to do is what we're seeing play out. How does the Space Force and NASA, like how are they different? 
Well, so not, I mean, NASA's main missions, uh, like I just said, you know, some of it is technology development. Some of it is, uh, is science, space science, going to Mars and, and, and exploring the, the solar system and so on. Right. So, so they're, they're developing capabilities for industry and they're doing science and, and research. Space Force, you know, so what, one of the questions I often get asked is, what's the difference between Space Force and Space Command? That's a, oh. that's a trickier question to answer. But, but, but what Space Force is supposed to do, of course, is protect American assets in space, right? And, and, and so whether that might, be, that might be their own satellites, Space Force operates satellites, it might be NASA science satellites, it might be commercial satellites like like space link and so on so that's their job they, you know so it's very much just like the other armed forces right the navy protects american interests and assets on the seas right space force, force. does it yeah yeah right i mean it's if you put it that way it's it's relatively simple to understand i mean how they do it of course is different from the navy but that's their that's their basic mission yeah I don't know if it, because I watch movies, obviously, right? And then I get to talk to smart people and sometimes they mix together. Do we have like missiles in space that can shoot down or, or is there something like we're not allowed to have missiles in space? How does that go? Right. So there's something called the um, Outer Space Treaty. It sounds kind of like sci-fi, but the Outer Space Treaty basically says that, that, that space should only be used for peaceful purposes and basically bans what we would call the weaponization of space, having weapons in space. And so there's more than 100 com, uh, countries have signed up to that treaty. It was formulated in the late 60s. There was a lot of talk about that's way out of date and everything's changed since then and we need to you know, revisit it. It's true that it needs to be revisited, but I think it's very complicated. So the official policy of the U.S. government is not to put weapons in space because of right. the Outer Space Treaty. You know, there's been reports, again, of several countries like destroying satellites, usually their own satellites, but not from space, rather, you know, from launching something from the surface of the Earth and shooting down one of their own satellites, which on the one hand is a great demonstration of what they can do, but of course it creates a tremendous amount of uh, space debris, orbital de debris, and messes everything up. So I hope there won't be too many more of those uh, tests. But that's, you know, I think people are becoming concerned about the weaponization, the militarization of space. You know, it again, the, the usual peer nations are all capable of putting stuff up there. Yeah. And, you know, and a spacecraft is a very very flimsy thing it doesn't have armor on it i mean you you know you you could you could smash a, a satellite to pieces with a with a hammer you know right it's uh they're not hardened and and so they're they are very vulnerable so again lots of conversations i'm sure going on about how to protect u.s assets in space it's hard to do and i respect that that's the policy but i don't think there's anything anyone could tell me that like even if the highest ranking general was in a private room with me, I wouldn't believe him if he told me that countries who can access space easily don't have weapons there. Like it just to me, it, I just know it's it's a human nature thing, and I would argue that all day. But I obviously want peace and whatnot, and we do this thing as humans, right? But well, and it's a, you know it's a 
continuation of the Cold War, right? Where basically it's just, you know, one side has something, the other side counteracts it, maybe goes above it. And then it's a never ending, you know, escalation of, and, and so one of the things I always think looking back on the Cold War is it's amazing how well actually it worked. I mean, a lot of money was spent, yeah, but it did work. There was enough communication between the two sides that uh, we got close a couple of times, but nothing bad actually did happen. And I think part of the concern today is that the U.S. doesn't have those same kinds of, you know, like the hotline that used to be between Washington and Moscow. You know, the president could call the hotline at any time to talk to the the premier of of the now Soviet they just Union. text <laughs> now, yeah. well yeah now, now they just tr- now they just troll each other right yeah. just like everybody Twitter. else <laughs> yeah oh yeah. man it's not quite the same right no. and uh, and again I think the Ukraine situation kind of shows right that we're we're in a an unstable point right now so going back to your point I think the more communication and discussion and finding of common points is uh, super important. Yeah, no text-based communication because like video calls only, FaceTime only, because the amount text gets interpreted so incorrectly. You know, you see that a lot with companies that work online. Like we are, we're a remote company. So we are really good about telling everybody, hey, you know, when you read text, you're replying often your own mood to it, right? Because yep. you're in that context. So we, we're, we're very aware at the company and talk about it a lot about text communication. And if there's ever anyone feeling like rude or incorrect or something, like just pick up the phone and call them or do a video call or something. So yeah, definitely don't want text communication between world leaders. <laughs> well, and, and even more so when it's not your, your native language, right? When you're putting text into, right? I mean, again, that's an extra layer of opportunity for misunderstanding, right? <laughs> Google Translate causes World War Three, <laughs> <laughs> Right. We're laughing. I just hope that's. <laughs> I <know. laughs> yeah. I think though, my thoughts like against a, a large global war would be that, like, life is pretty good. You know, as far as the advancements we have and and the creature comforts that we have as people, I think that motivates you to want to talk it out more, right? Yeah, I think that's the the yin and yang of globalization, right? That in the end. Almost everybody has too much to lose. Absolutely. So, what else am I not? What am I not asking about hypersonic technology that I should be asking? Well, I think it's you know it's it's a very exciting area for those of us you know who work on the research because sometimes you have to go all the way down to looking at what individual molecules and atoms are doing. So, it's really a lot of basic physics and chemistry that feed into the kind of engineering and design of vehicles. So, it's just a, it's a very rich field in terms of, like I said, in terms of uh, research depth and technical challenges. I think another exciting aspect of it is what we've talked about, which is the kind of interplay between space exploration and national defense. And so some of my projects, you know, are funded by NASA and we're thinking about flying hypersonic vehicles to, you know, one of the moons of Saturn. And some of my projects are funded by the Department of Defense when we're thinking about, you know, how how does radio blackout occur on hypersonic vehicles and how can we prevent it? So it's a it's 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 a really you know broad and deep kind of technology area. I'm, I'm going to say it's a lot of fun to work on. It's just it's just you know intellectually challenging and stimulating. It, it it's a lot of uh, you know very cool stuff. 
when they're at hypersonic speeds do is it radio blackout is that the default can it not communicate so it does depend if you're coming back from the space station for example you would definitely have a period of radio blackout there so what happens in that case is that the air that's around the vehicle gets gets heated up to very high temperatures so that's that's kind of the unique part of hypersonics is that that you know the air flowing around a regular airplane just more or less stays at regular temperatures. But in hypersonics, it could get, get to be you know, many thousands of degrees. So like, it's the same temperature as the surface of the sun, which is crazy, right? So you have, and you know, sometimes in the movies and things, you just kind of see all this fire yeah. around, right? right? So, that's, so that's real. And so what happens when air gets heated up to these super high temperatures is the molecules break apart, they, the atoms break apart, and you and you get this situation called a plasma, which is just a it's like air, but it's got electrons in it. It's got charged particles in it, and so it's the electrons in the end that cause uh, radio blackout. So you know you're coming back from the space station. You know there's going to be 30 seconds of radio blackout. I don't know what it is, but something like that. 30 seconds of radio blackout. Everybody's cool about it. It's expected. It happens, and every, and you come out the other side, and everything's fine. Again, going back to the national security aspect, well, if you have a missile, right, and it's flying hypersonic speed, and you can cannot communicate with it, uh, that's the that's an untenable position. Because let's say you decide to recall a vehicle or self destruct it, <laughs> right? Uh, it turns out these people aren't our enemies, and we, you know, you've got to be able to communicate with it, and it's all done with with radio waves, right? So it's very important to understand when that happens, and if it does happen how to get around it. So you work on defense, you work on this hypersonic technology. What else do you do? So I'm a you know, professor here at University of Colorado and work with a bunch of grad students on hypersonics and also on uh, space propulsion systems. So that's another interesting area where I mentioned plasmas just a little while ago. So plasma-based engines are being used uh, and developed for more efficient uh, space uh, exploration and transportation. Yeah, and, and at, at the university, I, I guess I have two roles. I have all that research uh, part, and then I, I'm the director of a center looking at uh, different aspects of national security uh, technology development. So that that's across you know a, a broad range of things. And I definitely want to ask you a series of questions like about leadership and that. But you said something that intrigued me. What is plasma? Like I know what it is in like a movie sense or or whatnot, but like what is plasma actually? Well, pl- yeah. So plasma is like like a gas, right? And and so you know, I don't know if you think of at least in my high school chemistry, you would see like bromine gas or something, right? So think of a gas, and usually gases are just made up of molecules and atoms. And then what a plasma is is that there are electrons and ions in there. So if you have an atom, if you have a hydrogen atom, it has one electron going around it. So if you somehow were able to pull that electron off of the atom, completely detach it, then what would be left is the ion, and you've taken away an electron. And so a plasma is a gas that has these ions and electrons in it. So that's what it is. It's very interesting because you can, you can kind of manipulate plasmas using electric fields. You can kind of push them around. You can do things to plasmas that you can't do to gases because of the charges. And so plasma comes into a lot of different technologies because as, as humans and engineers, we can manipulate it more easily than just a regular gas. 
what's the core elements that we need to manufacture it? Well, there's a, there are a variety of different ways, but heat will do it. If you just heat the gas up to high enough temperatures, like the thousands of degrees I was talking about for hypersonics, then the atoms and the ions, uh, the atoms and the molecules just get so energized that an electron can pop off one of the molecules and it, become, it then becomes an ion and you have a plasma. So that's, that's the main way in, in, in the technologies that I work in. Yeah. So the base material that you're heating up is what? Well, a gas of different kinds. So, oh, so you, oh, okay, gas of you can. So you, you start can with plas- a gas. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Directly from from a gas. Yeah. So it's interesting. For I was talking about space plasma propulsion there. So most of those systems use xenon gas. Okay. Yep. It just turns out that it's relatively easy to remove the electrons from xenon atoms. And, Doesn't uh, it start with an X? And that's kind of cool, right? <laughs> it starts with an X, but right? it couldn't be any cooler than that, right? It's like <laughs> X, X-rated technology. Yeah, There right. you go. Oh, that was good. All right, leadership stuff. Where did you get your leadership skills? Like, you're obviously very experienced and you're running a department, you're a professor, and, and you're shaping the next generation of engineers and scientists and whatnot. Where did you acquire your leadership skills? Uh, I think that was mainly through um, interaction with a part of the Air Force. The Air Force has something called a scientific advisory board. And so it's like a group, of, it's a big group of like 50 people, very, very smart people from, you know, from industry, other parts of government and universities. And so I was a member of that body for a few years and I had the opportunity to lead what they call studies. So what one of the main things that board does is study different topics for the Secretary of the Air Force. So I had the opportunity to lead a couple of those studies, and I was the vice chair of the, of the overall board. I learned a lot in that process by talking to retired military people, like re- retired four-star generals, who obviously get a lot of leadership training for, for their particular brand of leadership. But then there was also industry leaders and, you know, vice presidents and presidents. I mean, it was that kind of level of people. And it was just the mixing for me coming from a university Talking to military leadership, talking to industry leadership just gave me really a lot of mentoring and an opportunity, you know, to think about what I think is important in the end for, I mean, leadership is all about getting people to do stuff for you, right? And and there's many different ways to do that in different environments. So I think that's, if I have anything, that's where I got it from. Immersion, you were just surrounded by it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I was learning stuff without even knowing it. But reflecting on it afterwards and thinking, you know, that was interesting how that person took that approach, you know. If you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice at specifically the moment you graduated undergrad, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think it would be to interact with people more. Almost any conversation you can learn something from, right? Almost any person you can learn something from. And it's it's about being open to listening to them and it's about you know, asking the right kinds of questions and taking an interest in them. So I think I didn't have though, I didn't appreciate, you know, the power of people, right? In the end, kind of one-to-one just like this. And then taking that and then applying it to whatever, you know, different things you're trying to do. Yeah, so I, I, my, you know, my undergrad degree was in math. It's a very introverted field. I think, you know, if I'd realized earlier the power of talking to people, that, that's the, the advice I would have given. I 100% back that. I I was started, I was like an introverted software engineer. I mean, like I was a quiet leader and I'd say the 
the one thing that changed my life the most was after I got to like 100, 120 conversations. It's hard to even express, but getting to know someone and having a detailed conversation for an hour with like 100 different people is actually something super rare. Yeah. You know, most people will say, yeah, I talk to a lot of people, but I'm not talking about the, in, the interaction of somebody like a, a store clerk. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about detailed conversation about something you both have a shared interest in because then you learn how people work better and it's it's fascinating well if you don't do it your way i think it's got to be pretty hard to do right you've got to really you you know how how do you how do you motivate 100 people to come talk to you in depth right that i'm not saying it cannot be done right but but oh yeah it takes a lot of yeah work yeah well the answer is simple you have to have something of value to bring them Yep. Right. Yep. Absolutely. So yep. early on, before I published the book, I had these conversations and then those turned into the podcast. Right. But what I found was people that were responding to me were often people that were farther along in their career and they were interested in sharing their experience and giving back. And so I realized, oh, that's a category. That's an area of humanity that you can tap into in order to get information from people. It's just something humans do. So we focused a lot of our early episodes on like, you know, doing that really well, getting people to come on. It's like, I'm no expert. I bring smart people on and I ask them questions and then the cycle goes on. Right. It's great. Yeah. And I get to meet awesome people like you. Dude, you are fantastic. Well, I'm enjoying the conversation with you, obviously. So this is great. What haven't we covered that you want to get out there to the world? I mean, I think that sometimes when I talk about hypersonics and it's on the national defense side, it sounds a little bit you know, doom and gloom. And I, I, and I think that what I would want to emphasize again is, you know, it's what we often call the, you know, the, the dual use or the multi-purpose that yes, there's a lot of activity right now in hypersonics on the national defense side. And a lot of that is driven by what other countries are doing, right? They, you know, the other person always gets a vote in, in what you have to do, but that there will be important spinoffs for, you know, non military applications, allowing us to, to do more and in-depth uh, space exploration, as well as uh, commercializing space. And really, you know, one of the reasons why space has not become commercialized in the sense of building products in space is that it's so expensive and difficult to bring stuff back again, right? I mean, it's great that you, you've got zero gravity up there and you can build something, but the cost of bringing it back and the difficulty in that has has kind of precluded companies really making sort of closing the cycle, the budget cycle on on producing stuff in space. Again, hypersonics is as we make progress with that and bring down the cost of materials and things, uh, will enable things like that. So I, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of positive aspects to hypersonics that will benefit all of us. Harvard's known for law, Berkeley's College of Music amazing musicians what's the best what's the the college known for space yeah I, well i would say it's the university of colorado i mean correct I think answer that, yeah yeah right? that's the easy answer yeah yeah so the reason for saying that is we get more funding from nasa than any other public university in the country and almost all of that is to do with space and 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 in colorado the aerospace sector is the second largest in the nation by state so Anyway, we're we're up there near the top for sure. Yeah. Well, no, it's gr- that that's first of all a completely valid measure. I can't think of one that would be more valid, right? That's that's a really solid one. And secondly, what what part of Colorado specifically? So I'm in Boulder, so it's just a uh, little, little ways away from Denver and near the mountains. Beautiful here. <laughs> yeah. Nice. 
Well, man, this is great. We made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel awesome. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for all the great questions. <laughs>